Lord, we come to you now asking for your help, asking, Lord, that you would have your way with us. Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? What we are not, Lord, would you make us? What we have not, Lord, would you give us? And allow me as your messenger to be faithful to proclaim your truth in such a way, Lord, that your people would be uh, in, in awe of who you are and your gospel. And Lord, that we would know what it means to, to worship you rightly with our hearts and our minds, uh, Lord, this day. So, Lord, give us freedom now as we study your word and commit it, Lord, to us, we ask in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I want you to imagine this morning, if you would please with me, what it would be like if a church spent three to four years in a $5 million building campaign and when that church is built, it started all sorts of good program for the church. A daycare, multiple choirs, jazzercise classes, a youth basketball league, children's scouting clubs, men's motorbike club, a women's reading club, a soup kitchen for the homeless, a food pantry for the poor in the community, a state-of-the-art cafe serving fair trade only products multiple concerts from various artists throughout the year, seminars on marriage and parenting, a job center uh, with job training, free tutoring for students, an exercise room where you can look to get your body into shape. And of course, the question is, what's missing? Do you know this past year when I was on sabbatical, one of the places I was at was the United Kingdom. And uh, for those of you who are visiting, I grew up in England, and so it was kind of like for me going home. One of the things that I, I did while I was there is I visited a lot of churches, some small village churches and some cathedrals. But what I noticed in most of them was an emphasis on ceremony. Candles, incense, statues, stained glass windows, amazing acoustics, multiple choirs, uh, ornaments all over the place. Formal vestments, stale prayers. What was lacking, friends, was a vibrant passion for the Word of God and its faithful proclamation. And in most of those places, one could rightly write over the door of that church or that building, Ichabod, the glory of the Lord has departed. And I'm, not, I'm not trying to be mean here. I'm just stating the, the reality. They're, they're buildings where once maybe the Word of God was proclaimed, but no more. True worship had been replaced with a religious formalism void of the Holy Spirit's work through the faithfully proclaimed Word. They were beautiful buildings. I mean, incredible buildings. And many of them had a lot of activity going on, but they were, they were dead spiritually. And if there had once been life in them, it had died a slow death, being suffocated by religious ritualism and formalism. Now, friends, this is not necessarily where we find Israel in Ezra chapter 7. But if something isn't done, if something isn't corrected, or if something is not emphasized as being necessary and central, it will lead to where they once 
were. If you remember, Israel, before they were taken captive into Babylon, were still worshiping at the temple. Ceremonies were still taking place. Sacrifices were still going on. But the people were also worshiping other gods, committing immorality, marrying, as well as coming to the temple. God's word was not heeded. But there was still a religious system in place. See, going through the motions of church, going through the motions of what you might call Christianity is not Christianity. God wants something deeper. He wants something more than simply being present and being involved. Those are all good things. And so now that the temple has been rebuilt and the formal worship of God has been restored, that was under Zerubbabel's ministry, there's still something missing. And Ezra chapter 7 through 10 records the second wave of return back from Babylon. Of course, we have been studying the first wave under Zerubbabel where the focus was on the restoration of the temple. Now we're going to be focusing on Ezra where the focus is on the restoration of the people. Nehemiah will talk about the restoration of the walls to kind of finish out this whole uh, return to Israel. So in chapter 7 through 10, the emphasis will be on the restoration or revitalizing of the people of God. And so here's the proposition from Ezra 7. Three essentials for church revitalization. Now Ezra will be returning to reestablish the centrality of the Word of God among God's people. Let's just for a moment take in the setting. Notice verse 1. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra. After what? Well, Artaxerxes is now in power. And so what we read here in chapter 7 through 10 is taking place approximately 58 to 60 years later than the time of Zerubbabel and Co. It's a long time. That's three generations. And I just sat back to think about this. If we go back 60 years in our lifetime, that would put us in the heart of the 60s, 1963. Some of you don't even remember that. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. All right? Let me just share with you a couple of things that happened in 1963. Martin Luther King Jr. gave his I Have a Dream speech. President John F. Kennedy is assassinated. Beatlemania would start in the United States in 1964. Man would not step on the moon until 1969. 45s and LPs would be replaced by cassette tapes and 8-track. Oh, man, we are moving. We're moving ahead. Bell-bottom pants would be all the rage in the late 60s and into the 70s. I've often said that I grew up in the 70s with bell-bottom pants, and I've since graduated years later into bell top pants, but that's a whole other story. The space shuttle Challenger would explode after 73 seconds of flight in 1983, killing all seven passengers. I can, I can remember that day leaving campus at school, going to a subway and watching it on the TV. 
the Iron Curtain of Russian communism would come down in, in, in 1989. And just on and on it goes. There's so much that can happen in 60 years. That's the point I'm trying to, to help us understand after this. So much can happen in 60 years. So much can change. Not just with population and migration and, and, and the, the, the growth of cities and, and technology expanding and economic changes, but also what people believe and how they practice their beliefs. So 60 years is a long time for Israel to be celebrating and worshiping in the temple and offering sacrifices and celebrating feasts. But what our text is telling us is that something was lacking and something needed to be put in its rightful place. And Ezra would be the man whom God would use to make that happen. Now, he's the writer of this book, but Ezra doesn't come on the scene until right now. Now, just I want you to think about the structure of our passage, because this is not how we're going to preach it, but I want to help us at least see this. We have Ezra's introduction in verses 1 through 10. You might even say Ezra commission. Where Ezra is introduced, he introduces himself by revealing his heritage, his passion, his journey, and his task. Um, to bring order to the people of God throughout the region beyond the river, but that would come as a result of the ministry of the Word. Then we have Artaxerxes' letter, uh, verses 11 through 26, and by God's design, just like the Zerubbabel, God would stir the heart of Artaxerxes to, to write this letter and provide these decrees, giving, um, giving Ezra freedom now to go back to Jerusalem and to establish order there based on the Word of God. And then verses 27 through 28, uh, we find here God's favor, God's favor. And throughout this chapter and into the next, we'll see the hand of God at work to accomplish His purposes. Now, we could go back like we did at the beginning of Ezra's book, and we could talk about the providence of God, and we could talk about how God's providence is always at work, and he works in the lives of pagans, not just Christians. And We have the same thing going on here, but today what I'd like to do is to work through our passage a little bit more thematically and to pull from uh, the, the three strands that are all working together to bring about Israel's revitalization. What our passage compels us to is this, the people of God, hungry for the Word of God, ultimately crying out for the favor of God. The people of God, hungry for the Word of God, crying out for the favor of God. And we'll need to look at each of these essentials for revitalization as individual parts. But we have to understand that they are dynamically integrated. They don't just stand separately. They are working together for the goal of the health and the well-being of God's people. So let's jump into this first category. I'm calling the people of godly character. The people of godly character. What is essential for church revitalization? The first thing is to have a group of people who have godly character who see the need for that revitalization. That somehow God is at work in them and they're saying something needs to be done. And exhibit A for us is Ezra. And Ezra then records something about himself. He tells us, first of all, about his heritage. And the point of going through this, son of, son of, son of, and sorry, Rebecca, you had to read that. 
but the, the, the point here is to say Ezra is in the line of priests. And if you remember back Ezra chapter 2, there were some who claimed to be priests, but they couldn't prove it. And without the proof, you don't have the authenticity. And so part of this is to establish that Ezra is authentically in the line of the priesthood. Secondly, if you jump down a little bit further, we're told that he's a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. So his giftedness, he's a scribe. And when you hear this, this expression, scribe, probably bells and whistles are going off in your head thinking, didn't Jesus interact with scribes? Weren't they a nasty bunch of people? And yes, they were. Why? Because they were supposed to be skilled in the law, and they were. They knew the law. They just had been blinded to it. They had drifted. They had reinterpreted it. But as a scribe here, he is a man who is gifted. He's skilled in the law. In fact, look at verse 11. Ezra is a scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. Verse 12, Ezra the scribe of the law of the God of heaven. Verse 21, Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven. This was his giftedness, which moved him then into his role. He was in a position of influence. God had placed him with his heritage and with his giftedness into a position of influence where even when he spoke, he had the ear of Artaxerxes. Now, this is unusual, but it, we find something similar happening in, in the, the book of Nehemiah, right? And that's that Nehemiah is a cupbearer to the king. God places key people in key positions according to his providence for the benefit of the growth of his kingdom. And that's what's happening here with Ezra. Ezra is able to talk to Artaxerxes, is able to influence him. Look at verse 6. And the king granted him all that he asked. <laughs> I mean, there, there was a relationship, there was a respect, there was some kind of a trust happening there. Again, this is God's providence at work, but certainly it isn't just God's providence. It's Ezra also being gifted, being dependable, being respectful, and also having the influence to speak to Artaxerxes. And then finally we see his passion. He set his heart to study the law of God. This was his passion. This is what Ezra pursued day after day. He set his heart to study it, learning more and more about the law of God. The point of verses 1 through 10 is to introduce Ezra as the man through whom God would work on the second way back to Jerusalem. He is a man who has prepared himself by his pursuit of the law of God, and God is going to work through him in powerful ways. So there's Ezra, but Ezra's not alone. I know Ezra's the main character, and he's the leader, but he's not alone. He wasn't the only person who was willing to be uprooted from Babylon and return to Jerusalem. That's why in verse 7 we're told, and there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year some of the people of Israel, some of the priests and the Levites and the singers and the gatekeepers, temple servants. Now primarily they're going back to serve in the context of the temple. They're a part of the support team to help him in his mission. And he's going to take from these people uh, and use them to train them to be magistrates and judges according to what 
Artaxerxes has decreed. We find that in the letter. But that's why we read at the end of Ezra 7 these words. And I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. See, Ezra wasn't just functioning by himself. He understood the importance of having a support team with him. And friends, your teaching pastor, your associate pastor, and the elders here at Gateway Bible Church cannot bring about consistent revitalization of the church ongoing by themselves. We can teach you. We can set the vision before you. We can train you. But we need a community of believers that is actively committed to these things. That the commitment for what is essential in the church would overflow from the elders into the children's ministries, into the student ministries, into the home groups and small groups, counseling and parenting and marriage building, and just generally koinonia, the fellowship that we have in the church. It takes people of godly character who are willing to say, this is the vision God has for us. And uniting together and saying, we want to see this happen. And that's why we come into this now as the third group, you and me. Friends, God prepares people from different backgrounds, with different skill sets, with different places of influence, to have a passion for the revitalizing of his church. Some he prepares for leadership. Some he, provides, uh, he prepares to provide support. Some, or say many others, unite together to be men and women of character who are seeking to grow in godliness. We're just, you saying, as a church, this is what we want to do. And what is implicit in Ezra 7 is the passion for Ezra and others to return to Jerusalem to invest in the lives of God's people. And it takes people who see that need, who are willing to act on that need in order to revitalize God's people in the land. So friends, it takes pastors, it takes elders, it takes the congregation to work together to say that what God has called us to is important. And when we find ourselves drifting or we want to put guardrails up to make sure that we don't, that we're keeping this before us. So first essential for church revitalization from this passage is people of godly character working together to do God's will in the context of the local church. Secondly, the centrality of the word. And friends, this, this flows right through this passage. For church revitalization to take place, there must also be a deliberate focus on the centrality of the word of God. In other words, there must be people of godly character that are passionate about the careful, strategic, and authoritative ministry of the word. In other words, church revitalization requires the careful, strategic, and authoritative ministry of the word. And I want to kind of pull out those three words separately here. First of all, careful. This word careful. Unlike the New Testament scribes who had drifted in their passion for the law, Ezra was a skilled scribe of the law. And, and knowing it and applying it and proclaiming it was his passion. Look at Ezra chapter 7 and verse 10 again. And this, friends, is a key passage. For Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. He is consumed with the study of the Word of God. He wants to know the Word. He wants to be a student of the Word. The Apostle Paul, 
tells Timothy, rightly handle the Word of God. Kevin DeYoung is helpful here. He says, the church will not thrive or flourish in its ministry without faithful and careful Bible teaching throughout its ministries, especially in the pulpit. So this isn't just Pastor Rod coming to Ezra 7 saying, hey, this is for me because I'm like Ezra, I'm teaching the Word and going away. This is for all of us, friends. This is a commitment in whatever ministries we have that we are careful in how we handle the Word of God. Is that what's going on in our children's ministries? If you're involved in that, are you careful to say what I'm teaching is actually a true reflection of the Word of God? Is this happening in our youth group, in our men's and women's ministries, in other small groups or gatherings? We just kind of sit around and say, well, you know, I think what this means is this. Well, what tools are you using to come to those conclusions? How do you know that's the right interpretation? We learn by being careful by applying principles to help us with that. See, we can be experts in all sorts of things. Some of you can, can recite the five solas. Some of you can say, well, I'm staunchly reformed in my thinking. And you can, you can maybe identify different areas of ministry or theology that are important. And maybe it's psychology or a view of eschatology, but you do not really know the Word. Do you know your Bible? Do you know what it means? Do you know how to approach it? Do you know how to approach different genres in the Bible so that you're not taking something out of its context so you can understand what it actually means? Do you understand the different kinds of uh, or, or the chronology of the history of the people of God? Do you know how the different books of the Bible interact with each other? Friends, these are all ongoing things that we can all be working on. This is what Ezra is promoting here. Friends, we must be careful in how we're handling the Word of God. That's why we have an equipping class that's taking place on a Wednesday night. Because we want you to learn to be equipped with hermeneutics. That's what we're talking about during this season. That means principles of Bible interpretation. That's why we have a, a Simeon Trust time of training for both men and women. We try and do that every year. Why? Because I want people who are sitting in small groups... I want people who are giving formal and informal counsel to be able to go to God's Word and not distort it because they're saying, no, I can't do that with this verse. What is it saying in its context? How do I know this is what it means so that I can actually be using the Word of God carefully? I can counteract those ideologies out there. So friends, what would it be like if your pastors got up and stood up here on Sunday morning and they just gave you thoughts and feelings that they pondered about this week? Or if they gave you, you know, psychological platitudes? Or if they just wanted to kind of make you feel better with some therapeutic nuances? No, God calls pastors and elders, teachers and counselors, worship leaders and small group facilitators to work hard at rightly handling the Word of God. And so we must be committed to a careful ministry of the Word. It's not just for those who are academically smart, but for all eager and growing followers of Christ. So the goal here is skillfulness. The goal is that we would be more skilled, more discerning, more careful in our handling of the Word. Secondly, there's this word strategic. This is what Ezra was doing. He was, he was careful. He was a student. 
but there's also now the strategy that is necessary to actively train up others to be competent to teach the Word. Not only did Ezra set his heart to know the Word, but he also set his heart to teach it. That is why we read in Artaxerxes' letter the following words. Look at verse 25, if you would. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the peoples in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God. And those who do not know them, you shall teach. You're supposed to appoint magistrates and judges. Well, magistrates and judges need to know the law so that they can make right judgments based on that law, which means then that things need to be taught. There has to be a strategy. Those who don't know them, you shall teach. And so the strategy is a strategy where the church is teaching others so that they can teach carefully and faithfully, but not only that, that they can teach others to do the same. That's what Paul says to Timothy. Now, friends, the most effective ministers or servants of the Word are the ones who are, are not the ones who are always writing books and stuff like that, although they may be doing that, but they're the ones who are always strategizing to pass the baton of ministry to the next generation. Now, you've heard me say this before many times. That is why we take our summers and we have other men team teaching through stuff. Why? Because we're trying to train up men who can handle the Word of God and be proficient in it. The church needs that. The world needs that. And part of our goal ultimately is that those people will be sent out, not only just build up our church, but also go to places and serve the Lord in a different context. I remember when I was... Um, after my youth ministry, which was in Buffalo, New York, I went back to my home church. So I was about 29, 30 years old, I think, something like that. And I was going to be teaching a Sunday school class, an adult Sunday school class. Now, this is my home church. This is a church I had a Christian school. And so I come into the Sunday school class as the teacher, and sitting in front of me is my former principal, my former 12th grade home group, home, home teacher, whatever he, you know, advisor, whatever, and my old basketball coach coming to sit in the class that I was teaching. I was terrified. But you know what? That's exactly what we want to see. We want to see multiplication take place. And friends, this is the goal. This is the goal for Simeon Trust that we do in our church. This is the goal. It's multiplication. That's why Chris Kurtz right now is an intern at Gateway Bible Church, because we want to invest in him. We want multiplication to take place in him so that God can use him however he directs. It's for the kingdom, not just for our church. It's for the kingdom. So the goal of strategy is multiplication. And then there's this word, authority. Carefulness, strategy, authoritative ministry of the Word of God. Look at Ezra 7.14. Artaxerxes says, For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God. 
which is in your hand. So Ezra is going to Jerusalem. This is the providence of God at work again. A pagan king telling Ezra to go to Jerusalem and to assess whether or not the people are living their lives in accordance to the word of God. So he's going with the authority, not just of Artaxerxes, but he's going with the authority of God because he has God's word. Verse 21, whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven requires of you, let it be done with all diligence. Now look at the authority Ezra is given in verses 25 and 26. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people. Again, appointing magistrates so that they can judge. And then we find there in verse 26, whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on them, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. That's a huge responsibility, but it is an authority. And friends, it's, he was given a great deal of authority, not just to teach them, but also to teach them to obey. And friends, this is the Great Commission, isn't it? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Putting it in a little simpler way as you're going, making disciples, baptizing them and teaching them Teach them to observe. Teach them to obey all that God has commanded them. See, Jesus is saying to his disciples, don't just teach them facts. Don't just teach them theory or a set of ideological talking points, but teach them to submit themselves to God who reveals his will in and through the Scriptures. So the goal here of this authority is obedience. Now, friends, a lot of people in the church, maybe even sitting right now, do not like the authority of God's Word. They do not want to be under the authority of God's Word. And as a pastor, I've got to be careful that the authority isn't just coming from me. That the authority comes from God revealed in His Word that we have to answer to. So our our goal here to to make the the Word of God central is that we are a people who are seeking to be careful, strategic, and authoritative in the ministry of the Word so that our people will be more skillful with the Word so that we can have a multiplication of people growing as teachers and leaders and that ultimately that we would be obedient. God wants our obedience. After Jesus delivered his sermon on the mount, his listeners sat in awe, and the crowds were astonished, we're told, at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. See, Jesus, when he was preaching, which, by the way, was his main focus in his earthly ministry, when he was preaching, he wasn't just going after the mind, he was going after the heart. He wasn't trying to get them to join up with a new religion, but to be radically changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ that he was preaching. He wanted them to listen, to obey through repentance. 
And friends, if we're going to be gospel-centered, then the gospel must be at the center. It must be the filter that helps us think rightly and carefully in this sin-cursed world. It must be what motivates the choices that we make. It must guide us as to how we interact with one another, with our neighbors, with the, the people that we rub shoulders with every day. It must expose the thoughts and the intentions of the world, but also the thoughts and the intentions of our heart. It must move us to act and behave in such a way that the people who... Um, I'm not exactly sure what I said there. must move us to act and behave in such a way that the people who know us know that we are followers of Christ. Now notice Ezra 7.10 again. For Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to teach it and to do it. So you have study, you have teach, but you have do. Do. It's so easy to say, I love to study. It's so easy to say, I enjoy teaching. You might say, yeah, but do you do? See, real authority only comes when there's a consistency between one's walk and one's talk. You can say a lot of good things, and this is what, this is what Jesus is saying to the disciples. This is what we're getting from Ezra here. You can say a lot of good things, but if your life doesn't back up what you say, you believe, or what you teach, then you're lacking in authority. Friends, there's a difference between good teaching and God teaching. And I mean this in a loving way, and I hope you understand this. Good teaching is when you say, hey, pastor, that was a good sermon. And I'm like, I'm glad. God teaching is when you say, that was God speaking to me. And friends, honestly, I don't want to be a good teacher. I want to be a mouthpiece through whom God speaks. This is authority. It's his word on display. God is looking for a people who are actively committed to him and want to be a part of a community where the word of God is diligently and carefully proclaimed to affect people's hearts so that they will obey him with joy. And this is why our mission statement says what it says. It's a mirror of Ezra's passion. He set his heart to study the word, to do the word, to teach the word, knowing, applying, and proclaiming. And what is it that we know and we apply and we proclaim? We say the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because we could just say the Word of God and neglect the Gospel. And the point of the Word of God is to put the Gospel on display. See, the Word of God is always oriented to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we want to be careful, strategic, and authoritative as we minister the Word of God through our ministries and into our homes, that moms and dads and teachers and deacons and leaders and participants in our various ministries will set their heart to know, apply, and proclaim the Word of God and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. 
So, first essential, people of godly character. Second essential, the centrality of the word. The third essential is the favor of God. Friends, the theme of the favor of God has been sitting in the background, flashing with neon lights. I don't know if you've noticed that. You've probably been following along with me, and you're like, hey, Pastor Rod, you missed that. Oh, Pastor Rod, you missed that. The favor of God, it's right there. Why aren't you saying anything about it? I'm saying it now. But it's been there. That's what I'm saying. These things are all working together. When we've talked about the people of godly character, it's been screaming at us in the background. When we've been talking about the careful, strategic, and authoritative ministry of the word, it's been flashing and flickering at us. And now we must pay attention to it. For it's a theme that is not just in Ezra 7, but it's also in Ezra 8. And it even goes into Nehemiah chapter 2. We're not going to go there. Don't worry. So what is the favor of God? It's the hand of God, as it's described here. It's the blessing of God. It's the providential work of God. Now, a word of caution. It is right for us to call out the unbiblical emphasis that is often present in American churches on seeking God's blessing, often called the prosperity gospel, where people are taught that if it's God's will for them to be healthy, be wealthy, and to be living their best life now. Friends, that's a distorted and unbiblical gospel that appeals especially to those who are poor. But we must be careful that we don't throw out the baby with the bathwater, that every time we see the word blessing or prosperous in the word, that we become cynical or suspicious because God does want to bless his children. God does bless us. He does, however, bless us and shower us with His grace, with His favor. And that's the heart, friends, of of Psalm 1, isn't it? Blessed is the man. And it sets the stage for the whole of the Psalter. That God wants His people to experience the favor of God. Right? Blessed is the man that doesn't Walk in the counsel of the godly, stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is where? In the law of the Lord. He's saying, look, if you want to be blessed, if you want to prosper, if you want to bear fruit, don't do this. Do this instead. Blessing will come. That doesn't mean physical blessing necessarily. But it means spiritual blessing, spiritual favor, spiritual prosperity. So we want to see now three areas of favor that are screaming at us from this text. First of all, the favor of God through Artaxerxes. Verse 27 says this, blessed be the Lord. <laughs> this, is, this is Ezra now praising God. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing in, as this into the heart of a king. I mean, how, how can this be? How can this be happening? How could Artaxerxes, the, the, the key ruler of a pagan kingdom, write a decree to send me and others from Babylon to Jerusalem to see if the people are living according to the law of the Lord? To beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem? 
And he gives two decrees in this letter. The first one that he gives is to find out whether the people are living according to the law, to, to carry the gold and the silver back to the temple. The second decree is to, for them to, to set up these, these magistrates and judges and to make sure that those who are working in the temple were not to be taxed. Ezra is marveling at the favor and the blessing of God. There's no question in Ezra's mind how this is happening, why this is happening. He knows this is God at work. He knows it is God who put this into the heart of Artaxerxes. He knows it is God who turns the hearts of kings, like Proverbs 21 says. This past week, we've had an example of the very, this very thing kind of taking place in our government. As I'm sure you are aware, if you've been watching the news, there's a lot of things happening in the news, but one of the things is that <clears throat> the... Uh, that the House of Representatives, the Republican leadership there, basically took down their leader and wanted to put another leader in its place. And Jim Jordan was kind of like held up as the key guy who was going to do that, and he didn't receive the votes. And a number of other people were put up as, nom uh, as uh, nominations to be the Speaker of the House. And who's it going to be? And we don't know. And all that's happening now there is also happening while Israel is being run over by Hamas. Atrocities are taking place. People are being, ladies being raped. Children are, are being abused and having their heads cut off. And people are taken captive. And Israel is responding. All that's happening while our house is sitting without leadership. And they finally put a man up for nomination who's very much behind the scenes an unknown representative from Louisiana called Mike Johnson, and he is finally elected as the new Speaker of the House. And surprise, surprise, he's a Bible-believing Christian. You watch CNN and NBC and all these news shows after that, they were saying, how could this happen? This far-right man now stands three heartbeats away from the presidency. God in his providence accomplishes his purposes in ways that we can't comprehend. And I don't know too much about Mike Johnson, but boy, we should pray for him. He's in a key position, if for nothing else, just to bring a biblical perspective and understanding to what's happening and a gospel voice. God is at work. The favor of God is through leadership at times. Not only that, God's favor on Ezra. Three times in Ezra 7, Ezra mentions being the recipient of the hand of the Lord. Look, notice verse 6. Notice verse 6. The king granted him all that he asked for, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. The hymn there is referring to Ezra. God was blessing Ezra's influence on Artaxerxes. Notice verse 8 and 9. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. On the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. Why? For the hand, a good hand of his God was on him. God's favor was on Ezra to keep him safe as he journeyed for four months from Babylon to Jerusalem. Then notice verse 27. 
And 28 again, blessed be the Lord God, the fathers who put such a thing into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. This is all God's doing. This is all his favor. And I took courage. God's favor. God's favor. God's favor. God is at work. And when Ezra stopped to look back and to see what was going on, he's saying, it gave me great courage. It's always easier to see the hand of God in hindsight, isn't it? But it should encourage us when we're going through things to be reminded that he is still at work and his favor is still present. And I want you to notice letter C, the favor of God for us. And for that, I want you to notice chapter 8 and verse 22. Because there, Ezra mentions a principle that he had talked to Xerxes about, that he was a little, in the context there, he's a little ashamed of trying to say, hey, you know, send us soldiers and stuff like that. Because this is what the principle is. The hand of our God is for good on who? What does it say? On all who seek him. Right, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him. And the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So here's the truth of God's blessing distilled into a simple biblical principle. If you choose to seek God, the hand of God's favor will be on your life. If you choose to forsake him, the hand of God's wrath will be against you. That's distilled, but it's a principle of blessing. Friends, there is a correlation between the orientation of our hearts and the blessing of God. There's a connection between setting our hearts on the Word of God and being the recipients of His favor. There's a connection between not walking in the way of sinners or sitting in the seat of the scornful, or standing the way of, uh, uh, sorry, standing in the way of sinners, sitting in the seat of the scornful, instead delighting in the law of the Lord and meditating on it day and night. It is the favor of God. So if you look back to verse 10 again and read it carefully, you'll notice a small but incredibly important word. And it's the word for. For, Ezra said his heart. There's a reason why God's favor was on Ezra. It's because he set his heart to the things of God. This is the reason he was being blessed. This is the reason that he was able to do the things that he was doing. Now, friends, we've got to be careful here. We can't manipulate God to grant us his favor as if we pray certain things or just say, I, I read certain things or somehow force him to move the great power for the church because we've done certain things. But what we can say is this, that God smiles on a people who are pursuing holiness and are eagerly and hungrily studying God's Word, teaching God's Word, and striving with their whole being to do it. Our time is almost gone, and so I want to encourage us now just to draw things to a close. I want to finish with these concluding thoughts. We're given in this passage Ezra's mission statement. I'll set my heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it, to teach His statutes and rules in Israel. I want you to be reminded of our mission statement as a church. We exist to glorify God by building a community of believers 
who are actively committed to knowing, applying, and proclaim the Word of God and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. The question I have for you is this. What's your mission statement? What are you committed to that's going to push you to daily rekindling your walk, daily revitalizing your walk, daily being present to serve God and to, to, to know God and to live with God in a way that would please Him. What is your mission statement? Lord, help us today. Sometimes we don't, need, we don't know that we need revitalization. We just keep on doing the things that we're doing. There's a culture of Christianity. There's a culture of the church. There's a culture of what it means to be a Christian living in our society. And so we just keep plugging away and living our lives. And we have no awareness that we need some refreshment from you. And sometimes it comes through a sermon that is preached on a Sunday morning. Sometimes it comes through opening our Bibles and having a time of personal devotion with you. But Lord, we are a people who are sinful, who need revitalizing day by day. So Lord, would you raise up here at Gateway Bible Church people who are committed to you, who are committed to godly character because their, their nose and their heart is in your book, not simply to fill their heads with knowledge, but because they desire to be obedient to you. And Lord, may we be a people that not only recognize the favor of God in our lives, but Lord, may we be a people who are praying actively that you would have your way in us and through us to accomplish your purposes for your kingdom. Lord, we ask for your blessing, not in its, its earthly, temporal way, but Lord, in its spiritual manifestation that you would, you would have your way in our marriages, that we would put you first, that we seek to, to, to live our lives as husband and wife according to your word. Lord, as parents, that we would have parents united together to see the raising of their children as such that it reflects what you desire from your word to be accomplished. Lord, would you shower us with your favor? We, we plead, Lord. We're hungry for it. We want it. We need it. We're desperate for it, Lord. Because we can't do it on our own. So, Lord, strengthen those who stand before this pulpit. Strengthen those who teach in our children's ministries and who lead home groups. Help them, Lord, to see the vision for what it means, Lord, that we would not just be a people filled with your word, but people who obey it and love you because of it. Lord, we need you desperately. May these ancient words, Lord, have their way with us. We ask in your precious holy name.